to episode 6 of Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. I am Toby Reynolds, and with me today, uh, I can just see her coming down the street, it's Dr. Raina Dennison. Now, I have to declare an interest here. Raina was one of my supervisors for my PhD at UEA, and she has got a wide-ranging film interest, so I'd be very interested to see what she's brought us. There's a large package under her arm. Yep, she's just about... Yep, she's just here. Well, hello, Toby. Hello, nice Raina. It's nice to see you. Yes, nice to see you too. Thank you very much for coming by the Emporium. It's a bit down a side street in Bristol. It's a little bit uh, hard to find, but glad you made it. So I can see that you've you've bought um, something rather interesting. I've not heard of this film. When you told me about it initially, it was like, ah, sounds good. So what, what have you brought to us? Well, so far you've had pornography, you've had art cinema, you've had documentary, you've had Michael Mann. I thought I would bring you something different. And so today we're going to do some 1980s animation. Marvellous. I've brought you The Last Unicorn. Okay. Mm, now, that sounds a bit apocalyptic, slightly. <laughs> <laughs> Is it fitting for the times? Possibly. I think quite, actually, yes, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's actually um, a fairy tale, which I thought would fit nicely with your interests in philosophy and myth mm. as well. Excellent. We'll go into that later because there's. I had a quick, um, had a quick uh, Google search on uh, that well-known uh, academic resource Wikipedia, <laughs> and it's there's some really interesting symbolism I think in this, and I think with a lot of children's films, there's a lot of adult themes in there too. So we'll get into that um, in due course. Oh, yes. Yes. So Raina, you're at UEA and you're a senior lecturer there, aren't you? I am. Um, yes, I'm a head of department for film, television and media and a senior lecturer in the same. And I specialise in Japanese cinema, uh, mm-hmm. mostly in Japanese animation. Mm-hmm. And this film, The Last Unicorn, is a perfect representation in some ways of all of my interests. Okay. It is transnational. It is um, partly anime. It is partly American, partly British. And I can tell you about how it connects the Muppets to anime. <laughs> okay, is it more than some of its parts? Because one of my um, things about um, a classic or that mysterious chemistry is that a film should definitely be more than just some of its parts. Oh, I think this film absolutely is. And unlike the other films that were made by uh, Rankin Bass that were often based on the Lord of the Rings uh, books and Tolkien's work like The Hobbit this one tends to get overlooked it's terribly overshadowed by the work they did for kind of TV specials Mm -hmm. Um, you might I don't know if you remember this one but there was a stop motion version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that had the famous song in it okay Um, And this was, it's hugely famous, and it was made in the 1960s, and it was on TV like every Christmas, and this Mm -hmm. is one of their films. And like The Last Unicorn, it was made in Japan, so Mm -hmm. stop motion from Japan. And this was their thing. They they did tons of animation, but they did it by creating the ideas and concepts outside of Japan, but then having the animation done in Japan. Interesting. Okay. Before we get into that in any more detail, because yeah. there's a there's a story behind it too with Peter S. Beagle, I think. And he's mm-hmm. yes. I had a little check online and he's he's an interesting character, so oh. and he wrote the book that it was based on as well in nineteen sixty eight, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, he did. Okay. So you mentioned about children's films. Um interesting enough, um regular listeners will know that uh, both Vincent Gain and Ellen Wright's very first experience 
of of a film at the cinema was the same film at the same time, which was The Jungle Book, Disney's uh, very famous uh, uh, cartoon. Uh, sorry, animation. Sorry, slap wrist there from uh, from a film from a film lecture. Um, what was your very first cinema uh, experience, I should say, in 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 terms of film? Do you know, having listened to you interviewing Ellen and Vincent, and having loved both those episodes, I've been racking my brain, and I have no idea. Okay. I think the first film I remember going to see was probably Return of the Jedi. Okay. Maybe so about eighty three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I would have been like, I'm still small at that point, but mm. you know, I was still a child. But that's, that, I think that can't be the first film I went to see. But that's the first one I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because of the Ewok toy. I think I insisted ah. on buying on the way home. Okay, so that <laughs> that cross marketing, that whole sort of uh, paratext, and the whole career yeah, was whole born. Career. That's <laughs> it. It's amazing what uh, what something yes can can kick off. So, did you enjoy it? Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, hence, insisting we buy the toys on the Indeed. way home. Indeed, yeah, it but worked. But unlike <laughs> unlike many people who don't have a lot of love for the Ewoks, I certainly did at the time. Mm. I mean, I think Simon Pegg famously um, uh, called uh, it Phantom Menace. He, this is in space. He called it a jumped-up firework display of a toy advert, which I thought was pretty <laughs> accurate, harsh but accurate. And then someone pointed out, what about the Ewoks? They were they were crap, and it was like he defended them, I think, quite well. So, <laughs> I enjoyed Return of the Jedi. Um, it's I think a lot of for a lot of people, myself included, it's um, usually the darker Star Wars are the better ones for me. Um, so, Empire, Rogue One, I love actually. I still think it's one of the strongest out of the um, out of the I, whole. I have a season. soft spot for Solo as well, even though. Oh yeah, no, definitely. It. Yeah, I thought yeah. Um, Amelia Clark. I think it was very. I think she she more than held her own and. Yeah, there's yeah, uh, there's some Donald great sequences in there. Well was great. Mm, definitely. So, moving on then. So this, I mean, Philip Vince, it was what lit a fire for him was seeing Heat at the age of seventeen. What was the film that sort of was like a watershed moment for you? Oh, probably Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke. Mm. When was that released? Japan. That's 1990. Oh, now I'm going to be in trouble because I wrote a book about it. 1997. <laughs> okay. Um, it was out 96, 97, um, but I saw it in Japan ah, okay. when it first came out. Um, I'd, I, I'd had a couple of formative experiences with Hayao Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli films before that. That sounds intriguing. Um, <laughs> Any particular well, the first, the first anything you're willing films, to share with, uh, with, with yeah, Dr. No, Kino? <laughs> the first of was my neighbour Totoro but mm. I saw it on a tiny television screen in a language lab at the University of Oxford where I was studying Japanese mm-hmm. and we did it for um, a kind of simultaneous translation class where we had to watch it and then tell the staff member our teacher who who was there in the room with us what was being said and act out the parts in English Oh wow! as we were listening to the Japanese and it was so much fun and I absolutely loved it but I was like this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It was so, like even, <laughs> even just trying to figure out what I was looking at was hard because mm-hmm. I was like, this is a film that is filled with you know beautiful fantasy characters, you know, fantasy animals that are composites of owls and bears and cats, you know, and and then you have little children alongside them, so you have these these wonderful, kind of slightly pastoral nostalgic images and you're trying to 
figure out how these characters who are basically supposed to be in the 1950s and 60s in Japan, how they're, you know, what's going on and how they're dealing with life. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that was my first one. And the second one was actually the film that was released in Japan at the same time as My Neighbor Totoro, which is Sao Takahata's Grove of the Fireflies. Mm. And a friend in Japan said, oh, you like this Japanese animation stuff. There's a film coming on in a minute. Let's watch it together. And we sat down. And from about minute five, I was in tears mm. to the end of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this is an absolutely devastating but beautiful film. Mm-hmm. Um, Grave of the Fireflies is based on uh, survivor memories from World War II in Japan, from the firebombings of Kobe. Um, which is near Osaka in Japan. So it, it it's the story of two children who you essentially watch starving to death through the process of the film. Mm. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, devastating I mean, just, stuff, yeah. Just devastating, yeah. Um, so I was a little bit skeptical when a friend of mine said, hey, you like this animation stuff. <laughs> Let's go see another of those films. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, this is going to be... Yeah, I don't know out, what yeah. this is going to be. It could be, <laughs> it could be fluffy animals or it could be devastating stories about children dying. Um, and Princess Mononoke is very much in a different mold again. It's mm-hmm. essentially an eco-fable. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Hayao Miyazaki's calling card to Japanese culture to say he was um, a major cultural uh, philosopher and thinker. He became what's called a, a bunkajin mm-hmm. um, or a culture culture man mm. off the back of this film. And it's you know incredibly meticulously researched and detailed about the history of Japan. And then all of that is given a fantasy twist by creating deities animal deities that are there to represent the environment okay so it's it's again it's an amazing film but it is i think very meaningful and very very much intended to be a challenge to the way people think about the period film in japanese cinema history Mm -hmm. Um, it was a challenge to people like akira kurosawa um, and it was also a challenge to young people in japan to get them thinking more about environmental activism as mm. well yes because on my understanding very very basic is that the um during the uh economic boom in the 80s this was not a priority as uh, so much as uh, then when japan went through three recessions in the 90s mm-hmm. and then was there a sort of like a re a reflection or sort of national reflection like a period of national sort of like self-examination in some ways or um so this so during the 60s and 70s, there were very anthropocentric, local, grassroots citizens' movements about the environment in Japan. Um, mm. In the wake of things like the Minamata poisoning. Um, so there were a bunch of industrial disasters that caused local people to become ill. Mm-hmm. And around the 60s and 70s, when those things were happening, local environmental movements started gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were very were usually centered around an single endangered animal or around the consequences to humans living near um, industrially polluted landscapes. Mm-hmm. So Miyazaki's film is a very much broader call to arms. It's, mm. it's about the whole of the environment. Sure. And about what we lose when we lose nature from our yes. environment. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, traditionally, that was nature was such a strong part of um, Chinese and Japanese art. In yeah. the yeah, interesting. And, so, and like it's, you know, and the other flip side to that is it's also deeply historically detailed, and the film is also about telling history, Japanese history, from kind of the ground up. It's part of mm-hmm. that that swell of historical reimaginings that were going on in the eighties that. I certainly was a beneficiary of at school, you know, where you were mm-hmm. thinking about the Industrial Revolution from the point of view of people using a spinning jenny. Well, mm. Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke is an attempt to do almost the same thing. It's an attempt to get us to think about the people who don't usually get talked about. So it's not about samurai. Mm-hmm. It's about... <laughs> or oh, gangsters. <laughs> or oh, gangsters. Yeah, but the samurai are, you know, your heroes usually sure. of the period film in Japan. And this film they're on the fringes you barely Mm. see them and instead you have an indigenous tribesman as your protagonist Mm. a feral girl and a woman who may or may not be dressed as a courtesan who's leading an industrial land you know an an industrially oriented mining operation so these it was very much about telling history by the margins by the people who usually get left out Mm. and that includes things like um Lady Eboshi's group of lepers. Okay. Um, who are the people in her iron smelting community who are making weapons for her and her goblin to use? So it's you know it's a film that has kept on giving for my entire career. I did Great. my undergraduate dissertation on that movie, and then Princess Mononoke as my PhD, and I have just a couple of years ago an edited collection on the film as well. So. I feel like it's a film I will never leave behind. It's always going to be with me for my career. <laughs> mm. So with your, I mean, you did undergrad at Oxford. So that mm-hmm. was the, and then you went on to do your MA where? At the University of Nottingham with someone you know very well and I know very well, which is Professor Markovich. Ah, yes, indeed. So I was working in a part-time job in Oxford, having finished my first degree. And I phoned up Nottingham and said, hi, I'd like to talk to someone about film. And an hour later, I was still talking to Mark Yankovich and he Mm. was still enthusing me about film. And one of the reasons I went to Nottingham was definitely to work with him because he had such a great open mind about what kinds of film we could study. And I'm Mm. someone who has always been in love with popular cinema. Mm -hmm. I, I would, you know, I'm... I'm a great lover of blockbuster movies. Mm-hmm. I and, and this is maybe why I struggle to remember my first film at the cinema because film has always been with me. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm one of the first generations to have home video. Sure. Yes. So yes. my dad was an early adopter, and we went the wrong way. We were Betamax. Ah, yes, a common the, mistake back in the uh, early eighties. Yeah. Yes, no. When I was growing but, up in St. Louis in America, we mm-hmm. we were one of the early adopters, and we had Betamax, and that was, I think, for the whole of my life thereafter, a fateful decision, mm-hmm. because there were films I had on Betamax videos that we couldn't bring with us to the UK because they just wouldn't play. Mm-hmm. And because Betamax was already fading when we moved to the UK and and everybody knew VHS was going to win the video wars. Even though it was an inferior format. 
Even though, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the yeah, well, I was really surprised when I, I dabbled in um, in film and media as a work and working in it um, as a production assistant, and they this is back in the early two thousands. They still used Betamax tapes because they yeah. got gave better quality. So yeah, yes. But ah. this is one of the early things because there were things you could get on Betamax that you could mm-hmm. never get on VHS. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they did early on, she says, having done loads of research into anime after the fact, was they made a deal with Toei Animation, which was one of Japan's biggest animation companies. Mm -hmm. And so there were loads of dubbed um, Japanese anime films and TV shows coming out just on Betamax in the States. And I think it may have been some of those that were among my favorites as a child that I have lost and never been able to recapture. Ah. So there's all of these things in our childhoods are fateful, but you know, all of my big memories of film up until kind of Princess Mononoke becoming the fateful thing Mm -hmm. that decided me upon studying film. Take it further, yeah. Most of them I saw on VHS or naturally DVD. and that, that was partly because I was so in love with animation. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, animated movies, you'd get the big Disney ones, as, you, mm-hmm. as you've heard yep. from Vincent Absolutely. and yes. Evelyn, that got re-released every 10 years, pretty much. Right. But Disney showed that, its muscle, I yeah. think, wasn't it? They, they were very aggressive with their distribution. And, uh, and yeah. yeah, interesting. But what, what, what you don't hear on the flip side of that coin is about the, the kind of explosion in independent animation that was happening in the late 70s and early 80s so the other film i nearly chose was Mm -hmm. uh the secret of nim ah yes which is from the don bluth studio Um, right and again it's it's another film that has a great reputation with people of a certain age who remember it because it was (laughs) everywhere when it came out yes i do remember Um, that uh, very much like um an american tale five goes west and those those movies from the don bluth studio um, but those were, I think, slightly bigger than this one that I wanted to talk about. And Don mm-hmm. Bluth comes out of Disney, so I wanted to think about something a little bit different and a little even more forgotten, if even more forgotten than '80s animation generally mm-hmm. is possible. <laughs> so, I mean, with the it's 1982, isn't it? The um, yeah. uh, the last unicorn. So we, uh, the other film at that time, and I think this ties in with the. Um, Certainly, the main um, sort of famous names um, is the Dark Crystal, which is the same time. Yes. So, and then you had Labyrinth about four years later. And there's a sort of little fantasy research, I think, in the eighties. But some of that is more adult than rather than children's. So, oh, no. yeah, oh to- yeah, oh yeah. There's so much going on around fantasy and animation in this period. In the seventies, you have also um, people like Ralph Bakshi, mm, of course, Lord of the Rings, who which used Lord of the Rings. Yeah, did rotoscope, with, didn't he? I think yeah. with and but and didn't run out of money halfway through, unfortunately. <laughs> but there we go. Um, and and Peter S. Beagle wrote the screenplay for Lord of the Rings, didn't he? I think for the and and a lot. Yeah. So um, with Rankin and Bass doing the Hobbit mm. as well, and and you've got connections between those those guys there. But mm-hmm. Ralph Bakshi's doing some absolutely bonkers animation in the seventies that mm. is all fantasy oriented. If you haven't seen Wizards, it's on YouTube. Okay. Go watch it. Okay. This movie is high fantasy into which is commingled live action footage of Nazi propaganda. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So it's high Does it fantasy. Work? 
<laughs> oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredibly daring for the time and mm. it's, it's right on the edge, I think, but it's an amazing film because what it's trying to do is warn everyone. It's not necessarily aimed at children, but it's about warning people about the dangers of forgetting the past. Mm-hmm. And, and it's set in the far future. And so the Nazi propaganda has been found and reused to create new fascism Ooh. in the far future. Mm. And so it's almost like the man in the high castle in that regard. Sure, yeah. Um, which, you know, TV that's only just starting to become popular in the last mm. few years. Mm. But, you know, he's doing that as well as doing Fritz the Cat, the first kind of quote-unquote animated adult film. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also doing things like Fire and Ice, which are high fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got, of course, things like The Black Cauldron from Disney coming out in this period. Mm. So it's, and I think alongside the live action stuff that's going on, this is kind of a high point for children's fantasy, as, especially if you include things like The Dark Crystal in there. Yeah, because there's Krull as well, which comes a little bit oh, later, yes. I think, which, good old Krull. <laughs> And it's also yeah. the the terrible um, as it's um, Hawk the Slayer, which uh, well you've got Lady Hawk, yeah, you've got Beastmaster, Beastmaster, I remember Beastmaster, yeah, Sword and Sorcerer <laughs> as well, which was um, mm-hmm. that was quite brutal in places, but I thought I really enjoyed it. Uh, for my own, forget, um, even even those ones that are aimed at technically at adults, by the time they come onto TV and they're they're shifted around they're being seen by kids as well mm, yeah so I there's mean, there's a lot of bleeding through and, and crossover between what is children's television and what is is more general entertainment in this mm. period and fantasy plays a hugely important role in all of that okay so tell me about the last unicorn Raina. why why do you think we should why, why do we need to see this film now we need so this is a forgotten for me a forgotten classic and I can get you from the Muppets to Studio Ghibli in one step with this film. This film brings together all the things that I've been obsessed with during my career, all of them. So the film is made by Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass. It's part of their um, their company's long trajectory from Christmas movies and, and holiday shorts in stop motion through to rotoscoped live action animated versions of the lord of the rings and this film, which is based on um peter Se- uh sorry peter beagle's book is um a kind of flowering of aesthetics that's worth thinking about and it's a wonderful fairy tale that has a really nice up-to-date set of messages even now so I think there's some really interesting things for us to think about in this movie and it's gorgeous it's absolutely beautiful um, so I think for those reasons I would definitely recommend it to people um, obviously when I first came across it in 1982 or 83 probably on video um, I was watching this movie as a child who's obsessed with unicorns like I was into mm-hmm. My Little Pony and I thought sure. you know, this was cool Um, Now I'm looking back on it and I watched it again over the weekend and was just really struck by the fact that I haven't watched this film for 30 years and the second the theme song came on I remembered the words It took you straight back Yeah, absolutely it did The best films do I I really felt it and 
And now watching it as an animation scholar for the first time in decades, I was really struck by just how transnational or just how international this film is mm. in really beautiful ways. So Beagle has talked about how he based like he based the whole of this story on the fact that he'd been to Spain and saw a tapestry in which a bull was fighting a unicorn. Mm-hmm. So that's the starting point for this whole story. And I I read that before I watched it again and then realized like the first 20 30 minutes of the film that are set in the unicorn's forest all of the backgrounds are done in the style of tapestry painting. Ah. So there's there's all these lovely little asides to the mm-hmm. film's history and production and and again stuff that I didn't even notice as a child that is now I'm watching it back again makes it even more I guess meaningful and even more beautiful to look mm. at. Just to um to go into the symbolism, I think not that mm. I've seen the film, which is I like not to see the film that um that guests bring to it. So because I come at it new, and obviously it it's, it helps uh, to for them to make their case. But reading up the summary, there's some quite strong themes in this as well in terms of um, changing identities. There's because yeah. the unicorn is transformed into a woman who takes on a new name and then she's restored to her real form and there's also there's death there's resurrection there's some pretty there's some quite very strong very spiritual themes in this and this is a children's film but as i said at the beginning it's it's often the children's films often have adult themes to them yes um this is uh, i noticed a few of the reviewers of the film online talking about placing this film with the top 20 scariest children's films <laughs> okay uh, and I don't that's... think that's quite right okay I don't think that's quite right but I think there's some really interesting things going on um, so one of the things that this film enjoys is some beautiful character design by Lester Abrams mm-hmm. he was also the character designer on the Hobbit uh, movie as well so he worked with uh Rankin Bass before, but he does these beautiful Art Nouveau inspired character designs. Mm-hmm. And then those designs are taken by the Japanese animators and animeized, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so he does these beautiful character designs, and then you get much of the same character design reproduced in animation, but with bigger eyes, mm. more exaggerated um, body shapes. Okay. And so it looks like an almost exaggerated form of Art Nouveau. Mm, and particularly okay. with the unicorn herself, I think there's some absolutely astonishing uh, motion and design work in there. Um, so this is a very early example. You know how often you'll watch a, a cartoon? I'll forgive you for that, obviously. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> but even. you'll watch a, a Disney animation or a cartoon and the characters are usually outlined in black. Yes, yeah, classic Hanna-Barbera stuff, yeah. Yeah, classic TV animation stuff, that. And that was really common in anime as well. But what I noticed when I was re-watching the movie is that most of the characters are done in that way in this film, with the exception of the fantasy characters. So the unicorn is outlined in these beautiful kind of dark pinks, and that gives her, when you contrast that to the kind of uh, white and lighter blue tones and yellow tones that they're using to animate her 
it gives her an almost iridescent look. It's okay. absolutely gorgeous. A lot of thoughts the, go into this thing. Yeah, huge mm. amounts and, and huge amounts of design work. And you get the same with the fantasy antagonist, which is the Red Bull. Mm. So this is the story, basically, of a unicorn who's been living happily in her forest. And she's been relatively undisturbed, looking after the animals, making sure it's always springtime and that nobody wants her anything. That's what her presence in this forest does. Only then to be disrupted by a couple of human hunters who mm. note the magic that is going on in the forest and tell her that she is the last of her kind. And that spawns a whole odyssey where she goes on an epic quest to find out what has happened to the rest of her kind. She doesn't believe they could be dead, but she believes they could be missing. Mm. And along the way, she she meets a, a kind of very Cheshire Cat-inspired butterfly who sings okay. lyrics and ditties. She um, meets with the Midnight Carnival, which I will talk about more in a moment, because that's the scary bit. Mm. Um, and then she also meets with King Haggard, and I love the name because mm -hmm. he, he both is in his character design Haggard, but I think there's also a side to people like H. Ryder Haggard in there as right. well. So there's some nice little bits of nods and winks to yes. the audience in there. Yes, there's some, yeah, some knowing knowing glances. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. So just before we get into the uh, other things, the, the cast, I noticed there's some fairly major names involved with this. So oh, yes. Jeff Bridges was one. And this mm -hmm. is a sort of one of his earlier films as a voice artist, but Mia and Farrow. And he sings. And he, he sings, sings, you know, so what's not <laughs> the to like? The dude abides and the, the dude abides, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's, um, but there's also Mia Farrow, there's Christopher yes. Lee. There's a, yeah. there's some fairly, you know, there's some serious uh, thespians in this I film. I mean, honestly, even if you hate animation, you could close your eyes and just listen to this film. It is beautifully acted. The script is wonderful. Um, so Alan Arkin mm. from Little Miss Sunshine mm. plays the wizard character Smendrick. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Mia Farrow playing the unicorn, Jeff Bridges playing Prince Lear, spelt L-I-R. Mm -hmm. um, you have uh, yeah, Christopher Lee as King Haggard and Angela Lansbury as the terrifying mommy Fortuna. So tell me about this Midnight Carnival. So, yes, the Midnight Carnival is run by Mommy Fortuna, who is possibly the most beautiful and most ugly animated character ever created. All of the characters in this are wonderful human caricatures. So where the, the unicorn is made to be more beautiful, the human characters are typically made shorter, dumpier, kind of truncated looking, mm -hmm. or long and spindly and... And so it's, it's all about caricatures of human shape mm -hmm. and form. And Mommy Fortuna is maybe the epitome of all this. She is, you know, typical witch. She has almost a, a kind of look of the 1938 Snow White old lady version mm -hmm. of the witch. She's got a bit of that look. She wears a three-pronged tree stump on her head and has a raven as a sidekick. Again, Ooh. little asides to Disney in there, I think. Mm in the character design but she is obsessed with power and she is obsessed with capturing real magical creatures so her her midnight carnival is a wonderful um exploration of humanity's 
ability to fool itself and be fooled. Mm. So um, Schmendrick, one of the characters, the, the wizard character, talks about how the how Mommy Fortuna's illusions will only fool people who want to be fooled, who want to see and want to believe in things that are not real. Oh. But that real magic tends to undo her illusions. So I think this is a really interesting kind of interrogation of what magic means to us mm-hmm. and what what we get from magic. And philosophically, I think it's a real high point for the film because mm. in Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival, we have you know a sad toothless lion and a, an ape with a twisted foot and a boa constrictor style snake that are being passed off as minotaurs and dragons and things like that. Mm. And in that moment, they're borrowing from folklore from all over the world, from um, the Norse serpent myths to Greek mythology, you know, everything you could borrow from is being borrowed from in this scene. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So it's a moment of bringing together world folklore at the same time as talking about how it's faked and how Mm. it's being faked. But then we don't see and we cannot see as humans what is really magical that is right in front of us interesting so going into the magic again the um because glamour is actually a spell the actual original word was meant a spell Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking if you're under a glamour it means you're under an illusion spell so from that we get glamour glamorous etc which i think is is obviously the magic lantern cinema which is what you and i and Mm -hmm. the rest of the podcast episodes are about is this illusion so there's a lovely that's very nice referential yes interesting of the Mm. eye indeed indeed all about and in particular animation that that ability to make you believe in the characters that are on screen despite the fact that we know they were drawn that we know their caricatures that we know they're abstracted that they don't look like us Mm. and yet in those processes of abstraction they become almost more real for us at times Mm -hmm. and i think there's something really interesting in that so to see a unicorn mommy fortuna has to place a spell on the unicorn to give her a false horn okay a second horn that people can see ah even though there's one there it's even though there's um... one there because when people look at her they only see a white mare so there's there's all this interesting stuff about seeing, not seeing, being able to perceive as well, which I think is very interesting. And that really comes to a head when the unicorn escapes from Mommy Fortuna's carnival with the help of Schmendrick, and they go to King Haggard's castle. And that is the moment when Schmendrick, without controlling magic, uses magic to transform the unicorn into a woman. He does this to protect her from the Red Bull. Mm. Um, But in that transformation, there is a whole extra set of philosophical issues raised about identity and loss. So once she becomes human, um, Amalthea, as her name is at this point, starts to forget that she is magic, Mm -hmm. starts to forget her quest start to forget starts to forget why she was there in the first place and does the most human thing of all she starts to fall in love uh-huh and but she it's that sort of um garden of eden thing that she falls and there's a 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of symbolism here. Okay. Tons of religious, yes. but also folkloric symbolism. Yeah. Lots yeah. of borrowing, not just from from Christian religion, I think, but also from folkloric traditions from around the world. Mm. Um, so I think this is a really interesting bringing together of ideas around the self and the other, around mm-hmm. magic and reality, around the possible and impossible. Um, so there's loads going on in this movie. Mm, and, that sounds like it. Mm. And you can throw into that a hefty dose of feminism. <laughs> and this is in 1982, so as well. Yes. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so, something um, there for everybody. Yes. My favourite character, and most people, if you were a girl of a certain age watching mm-hmm. this movie, most people's favourite character is not actually the unicorn, it's Molly Grew. So, they meet Molly Grew about two thirds of the way through this film. And. Mm-hmm. She is played by um, Tammy Grimes, who uh, was a theatre star with an amazing voice. Um, And one of the first things Molly Grew does once she recognises the unicorn for what she is, is actually shouts at her. She says, how dare you come to me when I am reduced to this? You're supposed to be there when I'm young and fresh and not now when I'm used up, basically. So there's a whole thing there about how magic is supposed to rescue girls and none mm-hmm. of this is happening mm-hmm. at the right time. time and yeah. 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 yeah, the dangers of believing in fairy tales in the some danger, ways. Yeah. Very much, the, but also the heartbreak that comes mm. with being let down by fairy mm. tales. Mm. And mm. so there's, you know, as a, as a story that is written by Beagle to be a fairy tale, a modern fairy tale, I think the layers he puts in there for girls are really interesting Mm. so he gives you a main female voiced character here well female associated character here with the unicorn who doesn't even have a name until she becomes human ah she's just the unicorn deeply symbolic as well yeah yes so symbolism is there overriding identity Mm -hmm. and who she might be in Mm -hmm. herself she is just the unicorn okay um Yes. I mean, there's so much in this for gender and for feminism, and I think the fact that it's overlooked, and overlooked in favour of films made by Ranking Bass that are based on Tolkien's works, mm-hmm. is really, really important. It's one of the reasons why I think it's worth rescuing this it, film. You've for convinced the me. Yeah, definitely, you've convinced me. Um, why do you think it's not better known? Because it, it made a hef- it made a quite a, it it did quite well at the box office. Because mm-hmm. I think with uh, Black Cat last week, um, it bombed, and that was it, did, it yeah. sort of like <laughs> badly, and it went it went up against American Sniper, mm-hmm. um, and it really wasn't you know it, it was perhaps fell between two stools. But Vince made a pretty convincing case, um, and but with this, it was it made us what six six and a half million dollars back in eighty two, which is not bad going. It's not bad going, and it's an independent film. Um, mm. It's relatively cheaply made because they've done most of the production in Japan, where um, animation was a bit cheaper to produce than it was in America. Um, but for me, the reason I, I think there's there's a thing about aging here, and and the kind of recycling that has to happen mm. to keep a movie current. Okay. So the reason the children you meet today will still have seen the Jungle Book is because of things like Disney Plus. Sure. Because those movies are in supermarkets, they never go away. You can no. buy a DVD of The Last Unicorn or you could up to a couple of years ago. Well, I've just read on 
Wikipedia that apparently 2.5 million copies on DVD have been sold, which would seem to think it's actually this is as a sort of underground or a, um, certainly a, yeah. a, a presence, which is you know heartening. But I think there was um, it was re released in 2015 um, yep. after a lot of legal wrangles between Beagle and I think it was Granada because um, there was a, various things going well, on. Well, so, that is actually the connection that brings us to the Muppets. Aha, nicely, yeah, nice segue. Yep. <laughs> so when, when Henson was trying to create the Muppets, the Muppet show in the 70s, no one would touch him. He went all the way around all of the different um, studios in America trying to get it onto a broadcaster's airwaves and they would not have any of it. So he brought it to the UK and Lord Lou Grade... Mm. Um, who works closely with Granada Television with ITV um, but has his own independent company actually ended up backing Jim Henson for The Muppet Show. Mm-hmm. So The Muppets are actually British. Okay. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Indeed. Yeah, um, that would be quite a... Yeah. Yes. But that is one of the reasons why this is a British-American-Japanese co-production. Right, truly transnational in that sense. Truly transnational. The, the, yeah. From the industrial perspective, yeah. And you can get from the Muppets to Ghibli in one easy step because the Japanese company that was making The Last Unicorn is called Topcraft. Mm-hmm. And Topcraft Studio went belly up in um, I think 1980. Oh, I'm going to get screamed at by lots of anime fans now as I get this wrong. But I think it goes belly up in 1984 or 5. Mm-hmm. Just after, or a couple of years after, they make a film called Naushka of the Valley of the Wind. Right. Which yes. is Hayao Miyazaki's famous um, mm. film. And so you get from the Muppets to Ghibli very easily because after Topcraft Studio shut, Toru Hara, or H-A-R-A, Hara, um, the big uh, studio head, actually was the first um, studio head at Studio Ghibli. And he brought lots of people from Topcraft with him to Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Though, sadly, not very many of them worked on this film, on right. uh, The Last Unicorn. I checked the animation staff, mm-hmm. and actually the only person who worked on a Ghibli film that I could find was the editor of this movie, um, Tomoko Kida. So Kida worked on um, Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tons of the people worked on Naushka of the Valley of the Wind. Some of them also worked on a, a Hayao Miyazaki TV show called Sherlock Home, uh, Sherlock Hound. Sorry. Right. Yep. And a couple of them worked uh, with Isao Takahata um, on Chie the Brat, but not many of them went on to work at Studio Ghibli. Sadly, we've got mm-hmm. people here who worked on Naruto, people here who've worked on all kinds of amazing animation, but not not at Studio Ghibli, pretty much. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Raina, thank you so much for your expertise and for oh, being very, very full welcome. indeed. <laughs> and it's this, this is definitely going into the Emporium's front window for this Yay! week. So yes, there. it's definitely. Um, so folks, that is The Last Unicorn. If you can see it at the cinema, we recommend it. Um, it sounds like you can get it on DVD, but as to, because it's such a, um, let's say, well, two and a half million DVDs would probably... There should be some floating around somewhere on eBay, I would imagine. Um, but it's definitely worth a view. And definitely. It's, it's gorgeous. It's, if it's in one of the top 20 scary children's films, then I think that could be definitely a plus in its favour. So, yes. Yeah. Watch out for Mommy Fortuna and her scary harpy. 
Yes, there's a harpy involved as well, isn't there? Yes. yes. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Raina, thank you so much for the uh, for the uh, heads up on Glass Unicorn. Much appreciated. And Very thank you for being a guest and... in the Emporium. And if you ever want me to come back and talk about anything world cinema related outside of the world of animation, I would be very happy to do that. There's so much in world cinema that gets overlooked and forgotten, and it would be great to have some of that here as well. I would definitely um, be approaching you in the future. Yes, no problem at all. Thank you. No worries. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. And thank you once again for listening to episode six of Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. Uh, next week we have a very special guest, uh, and that is Tai Singh. And he is the um, proprietor, I think would be the best word, of for the Bristol Bad Film Club. And if you're not aware of this, then and you live in Bristol, you really need to check it out. Okay, thanks very much and take care. Bye. <laughs>